Welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. My guest today is my good friend, the great Tommy Talton. Tommy was a member of We the People before forming Cowboy with his compadre Scott Boyer. They also backed up many Capricorn recording artists in the studio and became Greg Allman's backing band on the Layback album and following tour. Tommy later released a string of critically acclaimed albums as a solo artist, in addition to guesting on other artists' albums and live performances. This is the first of two episodes of my conversation with Tommy, which may be the most in-depth account of his life in music to date. Take it away, Tommy. Welcome, welcome to the show. Here we go, here we go. That's right. Right here on Podcast Andreas Werner. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today, uh, Tommy. Uh, I've been oh, I'm your for... guest? <laughs> well, technically, I guess I'm your guest because we're at your place. Well, so. no, we're each other's guests. We are guesting. <laughs> that sounds good. We're hostless. We're hostless. Uh, I've been looking forward to talking to you about uh, about your life in music. And, you know, I've been, you know, fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with you and, and Scott, you know, many of our guests great musician friends and kind of hear a lot of those remarkable stories and when I created my podcast one of my goals was to be able to share some of those stories with a wider audience so uh, thank so you so we can listening. spread lies to more people now at one time <laughs> that's right we'll make up the truth as we go along that's right the rumors behind the news so I believe that's fact you were born in Orlando, Florida. I was uh, well. I was yes. I lived in Winter Park, but I was born in Orlando. It was right down the street. So, what was some of your earliest memories connected to music? Oh man. Uh, well, fortunately, I had a sister about seven years older than me, who um, and my mother, my little Italian wonderful mother listen to the radio all the time. So um, I heard music around the house every day, all day long, from as far back I can remember, um, shoot, sounds crazy, but I was born in 1949. So um, 
I can remember songs like How Much Is That Doggy in the Window playing on the radio. My mother listened to it and I don't know when it was out, 53. So what, I was four years old or something? 53, 54. I remember songs from back then and loving them and listening to them. I remember them making, being a part of my life. It wasn't like, you know, I was playing with, uh, I don't know what, with knives in the backyard and not worrying about anything else, you know what I'm saying? It's a, I, I remember being conscious of the songs on the radio, even at that age. And of course, my sister, uh, Rosemary, she uh, was right at the age of when Elvis hit. Um, she was probably 14 in 1956. So she was right, she was that audience, and mm -hmm. thus played Elvis constantly. And Gene Vincent, who I really loved, Bebopalula and all that stuff. Uh, but Gene Vincent and Elvis, when he was uh, like really happening, you know, before. I had a comedian friend that said, before the old bloated Elvis, <laughs> back in the beginning, uh, man, when he when he sang uh, Love Me Tender and all that stuff, it, it's like almost cliche now, but you go back and listen to that stuff and it's just some of the greatest recordings. And, and one of my favorite recordings ever is to this day, uh, Sam, Cooke's ver Sam Cooke's recording of um, you send me. Um, it's a great song sung by anyone, but that recording at that moment, like at last, uh, with uh, Edda Jan. with Etta, you know, there's like these these moments, chain of fools with Aretha. Uh, all these, they're good songs and they're great performances, and anybody can sing. Not anybody, uh, you know. They're great songs, but those moments recorded at that time, that day, at that moment when Aretha sang Chain of Fools. I've even talked to Roger Hawkins, who played the unbelievable drums on that. Uh, Roger, I asked him one night, we were doing some demos in Muscle Shoals, and I said, Roger, I've always meant to ask you. It's like three in the morning. We've already been, been there for eight hours, 10 hours. We were just sitting around and half asleep and I said uh, I've always wanted to ask you you know that that night that day whenever it was that you played drums on Chain of Fools with Aretha did you do you remember anything special feeling or anything he said nah not really <laughs> it was kind of disappointing to me I thought yeah I thought Roger was going to come up with some yeah that the stars aligned and we could all feel it and we had goosebumps and he said, nah, it was just another groove, you know. Yeah. Well, didn't one of your relatives and uncle have a guitar? Yeah, I I um I remember I had an uncle Frankie who uh actually that's my first real name, uh Frank Thomas. And uh, my uncle Frankie, my a brother of my mother, 
he always had some cool stuff around the house. He had a wire recorder that I I remember seeing back then. I've never seen one again ever. Have you ever seen one or heard of them? Yeah, I have. A wire. It's just a thin piece of silver wire, like a like a high E guitar string, and uh, I guess you couldn't record much fidelity on it, but uh, it was a recorded deal. Uh, I haven't seen one since. But yeah, we he had got that. one at the he studio had... up in Nashville. Oh yeah, it's not working, but it's yeah, there. I'm sure it's not. <laughs> the wires broke, the, among other things. Yeah, uh, but that's you know he had all kinds of stuff. He had pinball machines that he had sitting around the house and guitars. And um, I remember walking. I must have been eight years old, and I remember opening up this one guitar case that was sitting on the floor in one of the rooms and I opened it up and I know now because I opened it up and it was like this my I was reflected in this shiny chrome front you know uh, body of the guitar of course it was a national dobro I didn't know that then but that's what it was and um Man, when I leaned over and I, I just plucked the high E string on it, and I remember going into a little trance or something, watching that string vibrate, and and it kind of struck a little flame inside me that grew later, and it was probably five years later that I uh, started learning to play guitar. My mother took me to some uh, guitar lessons, this old guy, some old Italian guy, I don't know where she found him. But I went to two lessons and she picked me up from the second one and I said, Mom, don't pay that guy nothing else and don't take me back there. He can't teach me what I want to know. And the rest of the time I just learned off uh, records. As Martin Mull said, licks I've learned off records I've heard, you know. Yeah, or Springsteen, I learned more from a three-minute record than I ever learned in school. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, there's quite a few uh, friends I know who had a similar experience. Actually, me too. I went to this classical guitar teacher that, you know, showed me scales, and then it's like, where's the song? Yeah. And uh, it almost ruined it for me for a minute. Uh, yeah, and I know that I have other friends who's the same thing, and then they saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show or whatever, and that turned them around. But that night turned a lot of people around. February but you know, that's 9, what's that's 64. what's funny too about you. I've I don't know how many people I've met through uh, the years that say, "Man, my mother or whoever made me take piano lessons." Uh, you know, before they were ready to, and. Uh, they didn't choose it themselves. It was like a thing they had to do. Um, and it became a chore. And so chores are not groovy. So boom. Yeah. I don't want to do that and I don't want to hear about it ever again. It's a drag because a lot of people later in life were sorry that they didn't take the lessons, but because of the way they were approached. It turned them off. Yeah. So, but once you 
found your way back to the guitar, you didn't waste a whole lot of time till you joined your first band. No, not at all. I mean, man, I... It's hard to remember now. Now it feels like I've always known how to play guitar, you know? A little bit, anyway. Still just a little bit. Always learning. But, um... I would... I would imagine I had not been playing more than a year when I when my friend Walter Niels and I, um, who had known each other since third grade. How old are you in third grade? Twenty-eight. <laughs> Seventeen. Uh, uh, nine. Nine. I know. Third grade. Six. Seven. Eight. Yeah. Eight. Nine. Depending on when you were born. But anyway. That's how long we knew each other, and around 13, 14 years old, we started a band called The Keys, K-E-Y-E-S, just to be a little cooler. And, uh, oh, within six months, we changed it for some reason to The Chessmen, uh, not for any particular reason I can remember. We just thought that's what we should call it. What kind of stuff would you guys play? Oh, the Kinks, the Beatles, the Kinks, um, some um, uh, Jimmy Reed. Actually, a lot of Jimmy Reed, come to think of it. And uh, not not a whole lot of R&B at that time. Uh, I liked that stuff a lot, but um, Walter hadn't been listening to it much. We... We didn't share that that love too much. He was more into the British invasion and uh, the pop side of things. Yeah. Well, so it, you know, actually, it, excuse me. It really, it really. I'm glad that I went through that because speaking of lessons, that was that was where I learned how to, uh, you know, come sing harmony and and all that. You know. The, uh, we did a lot. We did Everly Brothers songs. We did the Beatles. And, and the Beatles, of course, got turned on to their harmonies from the Everly Brothers also. So it's all a big circle. But uh, I'm glad that, that uh, we studied. I mean, you know, we just listened to it all the time and um, tried to figure out what version of chord that was that made it sound a little bit different than a normal D chord. You know, why? What were they doing? What was uh, what was turned upside down? Or right side up? So, uh, did you sing lead two in that band? Or main oh, one? yeah. yeah. And from the very beginning, um, we wrote. Um, I have... Even from that very first band, I have never been in a, in a group uh, um, that at least 50% of, of what was played on stage uh, was original. That's pretty remarkable because you were like 15, 16 14, years 15, yeah. Uh, the first recording we ever did, we drove over to Daytona Beach from Orlando, which is a 40-mile drive, 45. And, uh, damn, I can't remember the guy's name now. I know a couple people I could call up. 
and find out. But um, he had this uh, little four-track studio, and uh, or was it two-track? But anyway, uh, we went over there, gave him a few bucks, and recorded four songs. And uh, that was in nineteen six, late sixty-four. Or early 65. Was that the first time you were in the recording studio? Yeah. And then not long after that, like within seven months of that, uh, I was I had moved to another band, uh, my the We the People thing. Was but And, you, didn't you have a band called the Offbeats for a little? Yeah. Bit? Well, I went from I went from the Chessmen. Um, to the Offbeats. The Offbeats were like the hottest band around at the time in Orlando area. And uh, their lead guitar player uh, had to go in the Navy or join the Navy or something. And uh, they asked me to take his place. And I felt bad leaving Walter, but at the same time, uh, things were changing and... and I was kind of like more into it, and Walter Walter was an excellent graphic artist. In fact, he did uh, the cover of my um, Someone Else's Shoes, Tommy in Europe album. Uh, and his father was, his father was, this is like in 1961 when we were hanging out, his father was like the scotch drinking, chain-smoking, mad men, aid, ad agency guy. You know, the remember the series yeah. Mad Men? He was that guy, you know, those people. And uh, he had his own ad agency in Orlando. And in fact, um, he took Walter and I once over to, we were probably 10 or 11 years old, and we went over to, to uh, again, Daytona Beach. And we modeled for Norman Rockwell. It was a friend of his father's uh, through the ad agency uh, because uh, Rockwell did lots of drawings for, you know, life insurance companies yeah. and, and such. And uh, so he was down to do some drawings for some company and we were his models because Walter's father knew him and uh, I've got a print of it out in the other room so uh, do you remember any of the titles you guys recorded there that day in the studio? Uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> Come on, Tommy. It's only 55 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Oh, crazy stuff. Like uh, one tune that I had, Mirror of Your Mind, which later... That was a We the People thing. That too. was a We the People thing later. But um, I think I had just written it back then. And there was a, a less competent demo of it done in that first little shot. Yeah. So But you would just went in there to to get a reference copy for, for each of you. It was yeah, not it, like released or anything. No, we weren't going in to uh, go in and make and sell records no we did that with we the people that's what i was going to say we the next time i went to the studio we were 
in the big time down in Miami at, at Criteria, uh, you know, in fact, when we walked in the room, uh, Wayne Cochran yeah. was sitting in the lobby. and I Going thought, wow. back to Miami. Yeah, going back to Miami. But his coolest tune to me at the time was Get Down With It. Yeah. Which he was like the white James Brown, and he was, man, his hair was like seven inches in a pompadour, seven inches high off the top of his head, it looked like at least. But that was impressive. I was hooked, never looked back. Yeah. So how did you end up in We The People? They were called a trademark for a little while. Right? Well, no. Um, the Offbeats and the Trademarks were two different bands. The Trademarks and the Offbeats um, were managed by the same person named Ron Dillman, who was also a photographer for the Orlando Sentinel newspaper. And he um, came up with the idea of like... Uh, you know, this guy and this guy from this band and this guy and this guy and this guy from that band, it would be cool to put them together. And that's what he did. He suggested it and we all agreed because uh, each of those two bands was kind of like coming to their demise anyway. So uh, it was the next step. And uh, we the people, did a lot of stuff, man. We uh, recorded for RCA Victor, and um, I, believe it or not, still get royalties from songs I wrote back when I was 16 years old. I saw um, uh, there's a band of 16, uh, 17 and 18 year olds, like just five years ago on YouTube. I saw somebody sent me a, a link to one of them doing my song Mirror of Your Mind and another one called You Burn Me Up and Down. And uh, <laughs> they, they did them great. I mean, they just copped what we were doing when we were then. And it was great to see because they had that youthfulness and that spirit, that unbridled screw it attitude, you know, just play. Yeah. yeah. You you did a lot of the We the People recordings in Nashville with with Tony Moon, yeah. right? Well, we did, and Felton Jarvis, who also produced uh, Elvis, and in fact, I mean, at fifteen, sixteen years old, I was standing in the studio, Studio B, in Nashville at RCA, uh, going, "Wow, this is pretty cool. Um, I don't think I'll be going back to school." This is way too cool. And uh, it's debatable whether I should have gone back. And, you know, I mean, hey, my life went where it went. And I'm very happy with where it went most of the time. But uh, musically, I'm, I'm happy with it. Um, Charlie McCoy played on some of our stuff because our bass player wasn't quite up to par in the studio, so uh, Charlie McCoy played some bass with us, and uh, 
as I said, we were in Studio B. I think now, isn't it true, all they do there now is tours? Yes, pretty much connected to Country Music Hall of Fame as a tourist attraction. It's So it's a museum now? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's uh, funny, all these places I used to spend a lot of time are museums now. <laughs> yeah. Well, like thank the, God you made it Almond out Bro- of it. The Almond otherwise... Brothers Big House Museum. We used to have a lot of fun there late at night. Uh, and... Uh, we were laughing about that a couple years ago. It's oh. like, wow, this little house where, this little big house where we uh, used to play a lot of music and have a lot of fun, um, all of a sudden it's a museum. Yeah, well, I was about to say, I'm glad you made it out of all of these, those places, otherwise you would have turned into a museum piece yourself. I am a museum. I'm a museum too, but I. I don't charge uh, any admission, and uh, and I give no admissions. Well, you still write new songs. I mean, you're yeah. To me, a museum is something that belongs to the past, but you belong to the right. present as much. Um, I'm a, a still working dinosaur. All right. Well, you, you it was not me saying that, but anyway. So, as we the people, would you guys be on the road a lot, or how how did it work? What kind of places would you guys play? We the people, we we would drive from, uh, we rehearsed a couple days a week over in Leesburg, Florida. Drove down 441 and, uh, and would rehearse there, you know, maybe Mondays and Wednesdays. And, and then most Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays, we worked. Um, Fridays and Saturdays, of course, more than the Thursdays because most of the gigs were um, youth centers and uh, uh, some young clubs, the Tiki Club in Orlando and the Tiger's Den in Cocoa Beach where that's where I first met Dwayne and Greg and um, we did gigs together there. They were called the Almond Joys then. And uh, so it was the Tiger's Den, the Tiki Bar, uh, all these little dives that were um, just a bunch of fun, you know. Yeah, uh, and you you mentioned the Almond Joys. I just uh, remembered a song title from back then that I wrote. It was called A Bottle of Gin. And I don't remember anything else about it. Not because I was drinking too much gin, but it was some weirdo thing about some guy we saw at a club who always had a a bottle of gin with him, uh, drinking it outside right out of the bottle. Hard, hardcore guy, and uh, it was an obvious song. Uh, you know, there was a lot of material there. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned Almond Choice, and that whole area in Florida was a breeding ground for a lot of, you know, later oh, yeah. great, like Mod Crutch with Tom Petty. The Maundy Quintet, meant, uh, a couple of those guys became the Eagles, who Bernie, uh, Bernie Ledden, and uh, oh gosh, what were the names? Uh, yeah, Steve Stills. But the thing is, is that... Uh, you know, and Petty, uh, 
if you wanted to do anything, you did come to a certain point where you realized you could not stay in Florida. You had to get out of there and go to uh, L.A. or Nashville or I ended up going to Nashville for a couple months and then moving immediately out to L.A. and living out there in 69 and uh, part of 68 and all of 69. So that was immediately after the demise of We, We the, the people. people. I quit We the People. They continued for a year or so. And uh, again, I was just going in a different direction than um, the rest of the guys were. And uh, it was just obvious that it was time to move on, not because of any personal grudges or any bad feelings. It was just that's the way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I liked it. Yeah, so you mentioned you went to Nashville and then to L.A. How did you meet Scott Boyer? I met Scott, well, first of all, while in We the People, we played other gigs as we played with the Almond Joys. We played with The Bitter End and the 31st of February, they were called, which was, of course, Butch Trucks, Scott Boyer, and David Brown a trio that just blew me away and I loved see they were doing their song choices and their set lists were what I wanted to be playing as opposed to what I was playing in the chessmen and the and and we the people um, although as I said we the people probably 60% of what we played were uh, songs by either uh, Wayne Proctor, great songwriter from Leesburg, and uh, or myself, or David Duff, who wrote some of the tunes too. But uh, but Scott and and Butch and David were doing uh, obscure bird songs off of you know like serious radio deep tracks things uh, at the time and. Uh, obscure Bob Dylan songs and, uh, you know, it was just cool. Uh, and uh, had a, Scott and I had a mutual friend in Winter Park and she, she told me about him. I don't know what she said to him, but she said to me, you know, Tommy, there's this guy in uh, Jacksonville that you, you two ought to meet Because see, at the time, I had quit We The People, and I was doing uh, coffee houses. And uh, I had gone to L.A. and come back again, and I was back in Central Florida, and I was playing little um, coffee house things, and uh, of course, still writing. And, uh, and everybody else in the coffee houses, their sets were Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and Dave Von Ronk and, and other, uh, Pete Seeger, bunch of, well, they were folk clubs, so it was folk songs. Yeah. And, uh, and I didn't, I was halfway in on that. I, I wasn't, I was doing my own stuff. So she said, you ought to meet this guy. He's from Jacksonville and he writes his own songs too. So I went, yeah, that sounds great. And, We met, she uh, got us together. We met in Winter Park. And uh, 
he played me a song, and I remember he the first song Scott played for me was um, "Living in the Country," which was on our first uh, Cowboy album song he wrote, and uh, I really don't remember what I played for him, but after we had each played a song for each other, we just literally looked at each other and said, well, who else are we getting in the band? And I knew Tom Wynn from We The People and The Offbeats, a drummer, and I suggested we uh, asked Tom if he wanted to join us, and George Clark, a bass player who was in a band called uh, Plant Life, and the Gomads, they had to change their name from the Gomads. The record company thought, nah, that sounds a little nasty. So you, you're going to be plant life. So anyway, George Clark, wonderful human being, played bass. And Tom Wynn was on drums. And that's what I brought to the cowboy situation. And Pete Kowalki knew um, Scott and Bill Pillmore, and a new, we were familiar with each other, but um, he knew Scott and Bill Pillmore much better. And so uh, the three of them and the three of us from Orlando, and uh, we all moved to Jacksonville immediately and uh, all lived in the same house. I think the rent was $75 a month, something like that. And uh, we had a newspaper route that we would uh, throw newspapers at one, two in the morning and uh, come home and work all night on songs that Scott wrote or I wrote or Bill wrote or Pete wrote. And uh, that's what we did. We played music and worked on arrangements and kids a couple years younger than us like Ronnie Van Zant would come and stop by and sit at, sit at our rehearsals and, you know, we just uh, lived it. We lived every waking moment. We really were, you know, at that time we were, what, 20 years old and we didn't have wives and we didn't had, have uh, uh, mortgages. Didn't have much of anything except guitars and songs and ideas. And so, and that was what we loved doing most anyway. So it worked out pretty good. Yeah. And how uh, did the name Cowboy came about? Do you remember that? You know, uh, it never did have anything to do with anything musical. It was like, um, which is really, if we'd have thought about it a little more, we probably would never have called ourselves Cowboy because, of course, you hear that name and you go, yeah, there got to be a country band. Well, we weren't. But uh, actually, our first uh, choice was, uh, well, we had, we wanted to eat, some of us wanted to be called Easy because we were mellow and we were hippies and we weren't hippies, but we, we were, uh, you know, we were into the mellower side of, uh, of the music and uh, we definitely, we were not heavy metal. <laughs> and uh, some of us wanted to be called easy and some of us uh, I don't know who came up with cowboy 
But what happened was we played a game of, you know, the basketball game, horse, where you shoot. And, well, we played horse to break the, uh, the undecided uh, deal about what we were going to be called. And whoever won the game got to choose the name, Easy or Cowboy. And George Clark won and picked Easy. And then uh, after Dwayne came through and, and we played some music with him for a while, he was saying he was going back to Macon, Georgia, and I'd never even heard of Macon then. And uh, he said, you know, yeah, there's this guy up there, Phil Walton, he's got a record company, da 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 we're going to do this. And so anyway... Uh, we ended up moving up there too because Dwayne had, had uh, told Phil and Johnny Sandlin uh, uh, learned about us through Phil and came down and gave us a little audition. Actually, he fell asleep at the audition gig because he was wore out from moving around so much. But anyway, we uh, became quick friends, Johnny and I. I remember we talked about it forever after that. You know, even, you know, in the last months before he passed on, we were remembering how the day we met, within hours, we felt like we'd known each other forever, which was pretty cool. That's always a good feeling, isn't it? Absolutely. When you meet someone that you know you feel like forever with. But... uh what happened though is after we recorded for Capricorn, we're getting ready to put the Easy album out, and uh, they found out that uh, there was a band in California that had already recorded and had records out called Easy, so we couldn't use that. So, second choice, Cowboy, that, and that's how that happened. That's how this. Story goes. And the rest is unknown history. Yeah. So the first album was Reach for the Sky album, right? Yes. And uh, the cover of that was yeah. kind of a last-minute affair in a way, too. Well, yeah, I guess it was. I mean, I don't remember how that came about either. We just, well, Phil said, well, the art department was saying we need an album cover, and... We were always all together, and I, I think I it was my idea. I said, let's just get some, let's do something here, you know. And we just got some crayons, you know, and became little kids and um, did this prairie scene and uh, with mountains in the background with crayons, and uh, it stuck, you know. Came up with the with the title Reach for the Sky. And uh, actually Phil even contributed to that. Um, Phil uh, uh, may have drawn the cowboy hat on the, on the face that's in the middle of that, you know, if not the whole figure, the face and the hat that's on the cover out in the sticks with the hands raised. Well, it was obvious we needed some hands reaching for the sky, but um, 
yeah, we just threw that together and everybody went, yeah, that's just fine. Yeah, how was working in the studio with Cowboy and, and Johnny? That was the first time you, you worked with Johnny Sandlin in the, in the studio? Um, yes. Um, back then, Capricorn was an eight-track studio when we first got there. And uh, Bruce Hampton said he remembers all these dates and stuff. He said, Tommy, you know, um, in fact, I found some papers recently uh, and it shows that uh, Cowboy signed with Capricorn Records in August of 1970. Um, but we were there before that. That's That just happens to be when the contracts were actually drawn up and signed. But we were already doing some work before signing and... Uh, Well, like I said, I mean, Johnny and all of us, uh, we'd all been living together. So, you know, we knew all the ups and downs of each other and uh, just like married couple. And we were fine and Johnny fit right in. He loved the music, loved the songs. And, and we all, he was the producer, but we all, everybody had a hand in it, you know, ideas, here and there, you know, let's do this on a percussion. You know, I remember on one percussive part, um, I think it's the song, uh, What I Want Is You, which was on our second album, Five Will Get You Ten. We used, uh, for percussion, we thought it'd be cool, uh, to rub a piece of paper against our unshaven face. And it, it was just like a shh, you know? And it was a great, smooth, percussive thing that wasn't, uh, uh, you know, obtrusive. And it would, uh, it filled out a space in the spectrum of sound that was perfect, you know? Yeah, so you're mentioning uh, the Five Will Get You Ten album, which was the second album. That did you didn't wait very much after completing the first one to do no. the second one. They were only about half a year. I have no idea. I don't know when we started. I don't know how much time was in between them, but we were sure on the road a lot with the brothers actually most of the time and. Uh, uh, But yeah, any when we were not on the road, we were in the studio, and I was doing a lot of uh, studio work as a hired gun with, uh, you know, playing with Robert Popwell, who was on bass, and um, he'd been there since before I got there. He was in the in the studio band with Pete Carr on guitar. And was Johnny playing drums Johnny at that was, time? Johnny was the drummer. And Paul Hornsby, of course, on keyboards, and uh, Popwell, um, great man, later became a preacher, I think, in um, Nashville, and uh, also was a great, did some great bass playing for the Crusaders, yeah, with Larry Carlton and Sticks, and anyway. Um, I started uh, doing a lot of uh, studio work um, 
on guitar, working with people like uh, Clarence Carter would come in and uh, we would do, uh, oh, who was it? Do you like good music? Yeah, Arthur Conley. Uh, yeah, Arthur. We did some Arthur Conley sessions with, with uh, Clarence Carter producing, I think, and uh, Swamp Dog, Jerry Williams, who was always writing songs. He was a, and Jackie Avery, who, uh, his wife Ella was uh, in Wet Willie, Wet singing with Donna. Hall, and uh, it was a it was a great great time. It was like wonderful. I mean, there was there really was absolutely nothing wrong. It was like we all the musicians hung down at that studio, and that was our uh, playhouse. That was our our deal, our clubhouse, you know, and uh, be recording and. You know, later on, and a few years later, you know, he'd be playing, and Drew Lombard from Grinder Switch would walk in, and I'd be doing uh, a song of mine with Johnny and Bill Stewart doing the TSS album, and and Drew would say, "Tommy, let me play some guitar on that. I love this. Come on, play." And you know, it was. I've said this in many interviews, but. Uh, it was just that way, and it can never be that way again, uh, as far as I know. Uh, boy, if someone can find something like that, God bless them, because that was a, a wonderful time. Doing what you love doing with people you love being with, how can you go wrong? Yeah, and I know there's, I'm sure a lot of those sessions kind of flowed into each other because oh, there did. was a lot of the same personnel. Do, do you remember anything particular, though, about the Five Will Get You 10 record? Well, you know, we Because we you did had to Muscle go Shoals, to Muscle yeah. Shells because they're working on the studio. Yeah, they were refurbishing Capricorn at the time, upgrading it to Quadraphonic, which For didn't go too well. In the end, it was a, it was a wrong way to go because that, that was changed uh, almost immediately after that. Was that your first trip to Muscle Shoals? Uh, was it? I guess it was. And that was still the original cowboy band, right? Yes. The second album. The first and second albums were uh, the six people I originally mentioned that all lived together in Jacksonville and rehearsed and played and lived music 24 hours a day. But... Uh, Dwayne came by when you were in Muscle Shoals. Yeah. And he ended up on you, that record. Yeah, but you know, I, yeah, he did. Um, I just, uh, you know, when I think back to the moment when we were recording, we only did two takes of that song. Please be with me. Yeah, and the only reason we did two takes is because Johnny heard some little click somewhere you know like a a chair Noise. hitting somebody's heel of their foot or something i don't know but uh that's the only reason we redid it uh, the you can hardly tell any difference between the two takes i don't think one is better than the other i think they're equal which is unusual 
but uh, it just fell together real quick. George Clark on upright bass, me and Scott on acoustics, and Dwayne on dobro. And uh, it's funny, when I think, though, of sitting there recording it, it seemed, in my memory now, it seemed like we were in Macon. But I know good and well we were in we were in Muscle Shoals. We had to be. Scott wrote it there. He wrote it in the hotel room while we we all went to eat and left him alone. And he uh, used the time wisely, I guess. And uh, I mean, he just talked about what was going on. I'm I sit here lying in my bed. Yeah, and he told me he had like seven sheets of lyrics and then he had to kind of pare it down eventually yeah, yeah. but a lot uh, of editing and and uh, he also told me that i guess when Dwayne got there he said hey i would like to play on a song play me something and then you guys were playing different things and then i guess he kind of ran out of stuff and he says well i just wrote this one how about it yeah and then i guess you decided on on please be with me yeah but Dwayne also played on electric, on electric uh, vibrato guitar on um, on that tune. I was just talking about what I want is you. No, it's not what I want is you. It's called looking for you, Scott's tune. Yeah. Um, beautiful song. Uh, you'll hear a ring ding 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 guitar. You know, ring ding 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 comes in about two bars after the song starts. Well, that's Dwayne on electric, and it just shows how, uh, you know, he was the way it should be. Uh, when you play, especially in the studio, you, you, the part you play should only be governed by what's the best... What serves the song. What's, what serves the song best, yeah. Uh, and... Uh, some people know that and some never learn it but it's uh it's the truth that's the way it is you play to make the song better you know yeah so after two albums and touring the original incarnation of cowboy dissolved and only you and scott remained and you built a new well we, a new band around it well we just uh it really came from the studio thing because Scott and I were, were always had so many songs that we were writing that um, we had a catalog in our back pocket that was uh, always needing to be recorded. So, and Johnny was always wanting to do it. So, uh, but that's how the the Boyer and Talton album. That's how came the Boyer and Talton album happened. And was uh, it did David Brown? come back to the fault for this one yeah David David didn't play uh, David didn't play any bass on that album Charlie Hayward played, played most of the bass if I remember right um, David did play uh, some horn with Randall Bramlett on on my song Where Can You Go the studio version which was only like a minute a minute and 45 seconds long or something. I think a minute and 47, I don't know. But uh, yeah, but David and David and Scott, who had already, as I said, they were in a band together and 
67, 66. Um, so David joined, Randall Bramlett joined. I was in, we were introduced to Randall through Jim Hawkins, who actually, Jim is the engineer who, uh, oh, he's done so much, but he uh, did, put together the original Capricorn studio. Uh, he was a, he helped engineer the recording of live at the Fillmore East, which is enough for one person to do. Yeah. Those two things. And a great guy. And a great guy. Wonderful. In fact, I'm wearing a t-shirt right now from his studio in Athens, 1093. There you go. So Where were we? Well, you did the Border Talton album with, with a new cast. And around the same time, Greg Allman was looking for a, a band to back him up on a solo record. Yeah, well, we you know we had been touring with Greg and and the brothers, uh, the original Cowboy had. So we were all you know, and when we were weren't on the road, we were all hanging out at Grant's Lounge, playing music till two in the morning, and then eating red hot chicken down the street at Hodge's place. And as I said, you know, it's like. What a dreamlike, wonderful little world it was for us then, um, for a while. But uh, yeah, we we hooked up with uh, Johnny produced the Brothers. Johnny produced Cowboy. Cowboy and the Brothers were on the road all the time together. It was just a natural kind of like. Greg had some songs that uh, that weren't suited for the brothers' uh, musical world, and so we we incorporated uh, or Greg incorporated us to to get those songs across. And Johnny produced that, and that became Laid Back, which is a classic, if you ask me. I think that that record to this day still. If it came out yesterday, I think it would still be just fine. It doesn't show any signs of time. Yeah, and he recut one of Cowboy's earlier songs called All My Friends yeah, on that album too. Which we did on our uh, Five Will Get You Ten album. Yeah. So, but after you cut that record, Greg also hit the road with a band that was pretty much cowboy, including horn section and Well, strings. the live laid back tour, yeah. 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 How how was that tour, which eventually came out on the on a live album, and that was like you backing up Greg and then Cowboy without Greg doing Yeah, we would section. start out as right from the very get-go it would be Greg with uh, the big band man we had three female backup singers a five-piece horn section Jamo and Bill Stewart on drums uh, Scott and I on guitars um, uh, Kenny Tibbetts on bass uh, who was from a band called the Melting Pot on Capricorn uh, he was on the first tour and then of course Chuck on piano and Greg on organ and uh, 
That's a lot of people. Yeah, you had a lot of sound. string players to it. Well, there were two tours, and one of the tours had 14 string players besides all those other people. I think there was uh, 24 people on stage. Yeah, and, and Jim Hawkins actually designed a mixing board for that live show too. He just recently told me. Oh, really? I don't remember that. I guess they needed Buddy more Thornton, channels. Buddy Thornton, uh, uh, a friend and colleague and co-worker with Jim Hawkins, Buddy Thornton, uh, he did the live sound. In fact, he helped design the PA system for the Almond Brothers and did their live sound. And um, Buddy and I actually lived together in Macon and uh, for a while. And he also uh, did the live sound for the Laid Back Tour. It was just a, uh, you know, all, we did 35, on, on one of the tours, we did 35 cities in 50 days. And uh, of course, after a while, you don't know you don't know what city you're in. Uh, it all runs together, but it, it's uh, we, it was a wonderful musical experience uh, for many reasons. One of the reasons being that they were all, all the gigs were in the top-notch theaters of each city. The Orpheum in Boston, Carnegie Hall in New York, uh, the Forum in LA, uh, and on and on and on. But always play. Oh, in Philadelphia, actually, was the most beautiful hall we played. We played at the hall. It was, at that time in 1974. It was already over 250 years old, and I got a little tour of the of the joint with the, these great stagehands that had been in, working for the theater for 35, 40 years. You know, and uh, they showed me some wonderful things about how the acoustics worked there. It's it was the same theater that uh, Eugene Ormandy and the Philadelphia Philharmonic uh, that was their home, and the the design of that uh, theater was so perfectly thought out um, sound wise that at one point someone came up with the crazy idea of there was a huge uh, chandelier in the middle of the ceiling way high ceiling and somebody thought they should take that chandelier down for some reason and they did and they realized that it changed the entire acoustical setup of the room and ended up realizing well it was designed for that to be there and they had to put it back up. That's interesting. Thankfully, they did put it back up. So uh, we'll take a quick break here, and uh, we'll uh, we'll resume it in 1975. Okay, that's a wonderful idea. <laughs> This was the 48th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Tommy's house outside of Atlanta. We'll pick up our conversation in the next episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. If you enjoyed today's podcast, 
please make sure to subscribe to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour on iTunes or check it out on YouTube, SoundCloud, TuneIn or Stitcher. That's it for today. See you next week. Thank you.